I'm glad you're out here tonight, and I'm glad to be back in live and in person here and not doing a video series, but uh, doing it on, in person. And it's been a while since I kind of started with the reason we're doing this. It was in March that Dr. David Reagan, one of my spiritual mentors, wrote a magazine article. The magazine article was basically the 12 Messianic prophecies that he considered most significant. I read the magazine article and decided to write a series of messages based upon that. Uh, tonight, which will be Psalms 2216, uh, I'm labeling it just Messiah's death. Um, Dr. Reagan in that magazine said this to him was one of the most significant Old Testament prophecies, Messianic prophecies in the Bible. Why? Why this one compared to all the other ones? Because basically Psalms 22:16 is going to reveal crucifixion before anybody knew what crucifixion was. They didn't use crucifixion until the Romans came. And the Romans didn't come until a long time after King David. So it's phenomenal that uh, Psalms reveals a method of execution so far in advance of the method of execution that came. And what does that do? Because here's where I'd like to start tonight. What does that mean? I believe what I hold in my hand is the only physical source of absolute truth on this planet. And those words, that you, you want proof of that? Uh, you'll, you'll see it tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the messianic prophecies that you gave us in advance so that because they were given in advance, and then when they came to fruition in exactly the way you announced them, we would know who you are, that you are who you say you are. So tonight, Lord, we're going to read about Psalms 22. I've written a thousand years before Jesus came. And yet the details, the exact details that Jesus fulfills prove, prove without a shadow of a doubt, that your word is truth and that your word is powerful. It's unstoppable. And those who receive your word receive the power that comes with your word through the Spirit. So tonight, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts. Give us understanding of the scriptures, I pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read it from all three translations, beginning with the New Living Translation. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An eagle, evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now this is King David. Okay, This is a psalm of King David. Let's look at the New American Standard Bible. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. New International Version. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. The first 21 verses of this Psalm 22 describe the crucifixion of Jesus. A terrible physical, mental, and spiritual suffering that he would endure on the cross. Now, you might think, okay, so... David writes this psalm a thousand years in advance of Jesus' coming. 
At that time, there was only one way of executing anybody in the Jewish law. How? Stoning. That's it. Now, neither one of them sound very attractive to me. Stoning, crucifixion. Which one do you want? Uh, what's option C? Because I don't like A or B. Well, stoning. So understand that when David writes this, if there is an execution to take place under the law of Moses, you're to be stoned. Let's go through that because that's what makes this Messianic prophecy so significant. So let's go back to Exodus and let's check that out. Exodus 19, then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you. Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And then the Lord told Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothes. Now, isn't that interesting? God's fixing to come down and meet. And I want you all to wash your clothes. And now people have this, you know, people have lost the, the fear of God. They've lost it. It's like some, God is some kind of a cosmic teddy bear now. And in this scene, he's, he's teaching them, <clears throat> you need to prepare to come into my presence. Have the people uh, wash their clothing. Be sure they're ready on the third day. For on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount, <clears throat> Mount Sinai as the people watch. Mark off a boundary all around the mountain. Warn the people. Be careful. Do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will be certainly put to death. No hand may touch the person or animal that crosses the boundary. Now let that sink in for a moment. Anybody who breaks this rule about coming into the presence of God, passing past the boundary line that Moses is going to mark on, if they cross over, you can't even touch them. You can't even touch them. That's what this execution is about. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. No hand may touch the person or the animal that crosses over that line that God's established. Instead, stone them or shoot them with arrows. Why? Because you can't touch them. I want you to execute them, but you can't lay a hand on them. So you can shoot them with an arrow from a distance, or you can throw a rock at them from a distance, but you can't, you can't touch them. However, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then the people may go up on the mountain and cross the boundary. So I, I'm, the point of this is understand that when God starts establishing a, a death penalty, God establishes a death penalty. What is it? It's his death penalty. You've, create, you've committed a crime and you will be put to death. In this case, you had two options. You had the stoning or you shot with an arrow. The Jewish law made a person unclean if he touched a dead body. Stoning would execute without touching. But then the stoning goes deeper. Let's go to Leviticus 20, verse 27. Men and women among you who act as mediums or, as, or who consult the spirits of the dead must be put to death how? By stoning. They are guilty of a capital offense. And always interesting to me that much of our judicial legislative laws really are biblically based. 
a capital offense in our culture also brings the death penalty. It's a capital offense. In this case, it's stoning. Leviticus 20, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, give the people of Israel these instructions, which apply to both the native Israelites and to the foreigners living in Israel. If any of them offers their children as a sacrifice to Molech, they must be put to death. The people of the community must stone them. How are they to be executed? By the people, not the warden, not some secret police, not, not, uh, not somebody with a blindfold on. The people need to see it. Think about that. Let that sink in. The people of the community. Now, what's the capital offense here? A, a, a parent would sacrifice their child to a false god, Moloch. The people of the community must stone them to death. I myself will turn against them, cut them off from the community because they have defiled my sanctuary, brought shame on my holy name by offering their children to Moloch. Now, I could go off on a tangent here, and I'm not going to, but you can just compare that to God's view of abortion. It is a capital offense. And it there will be punishment, severe punishment. That's all you need to know. This Levitical law of God was given in the time of Moses, which is some 1,500 years before Jesus and 500 years before King David wrote Psalms 22. 1,000 years after King David, the Jews were still living under the Levitical law. Y'all with me? They're still under the law of Moses, but they were now under the law of Moses, but they're now under Roman rule. The Jews needed permission from the Romans, theoretically, to execute someone, and the Roman method of execution was clearly crucifixion. Have you ever considered why the Jewish leaders took Jesus to Pilate? Now, let's stop there for a moment. Have you ever thought about it? Why wouldn't they just kill him themselves? Why not just execute him yourself? Now, now hold that thought. Fast forward to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And, um, and there's a guy named Stephen. And he starts preaching the gospel. And he's preaching the gospel to the Jewish leaders. Many of whom... And he's in Jerusalem, many of whom are the same Jewish leaders who were in the, the trial that put Jesus to death, right? And what did they do? Did they take Stephen to Pilate? No. They took Stephen to the rock yard. They stoned him. So we've got this conflict in these scenes. The Jewish people, uh, they stoned Stephen for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then you got Jesus, and they took him to the Pilate, to the Roman governor. Why? David's prophecy. If you don't get anything else tonight, understand something. Everything written in the prophecy must happen to the detail. If they'd have stoned him, then Psalms 22 is a lie. The Bible's not true. It was written a thousand years in advance. You see where it's going? 
in Mark. So let's go to the New Testament, Mark 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of the religious law, the entire high council met to discuss their next step with this rebel named Jesus. They bound Jesus, led him away, took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it. So they're taking him, and you have to, and again, the, the scripture doesn't real, uh, reveal an incredible amount of detail about their thought process. Because if you'll remember, if you'll remember, Pilate at some point in the negotiation with the chief priest says, take him and do what you want to with him. But they didn't want that. I, you know, it's like, no, you do it. No, you do it. And Pilate was like, remember he washes his hands? I think it's in Matthew that he washes his hands. Oh, my wife. Remember Pilate's wife comes and says, I don't have anything to do with this man. No, 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 don't do it. He washes his hand. So there's this battle. Who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? So if the Romans do it, it's going to be crucifixion. If the Jews do it, he's going to be stoned. He's going to be crucified. Why? To fulfill prophecy. And the point of that is the authority of Scripture. The details of King David's Psalm 22 prophecy are absolutely amazing. Given a thousand years before Jesus was born. So here's what we're going to do tonight. I want to look at the entire Psalm 22 prophecy. And as we read these Davidic prophecies, I want you to remember, David is the king of Israel and David is a shadow of Messiah. Now, I need to make this really big before I get into Psalm 22. If you were here this past Sunday when I did that sermon, um, I showed you about this, this whole shadow fulfillment. There's a short term and a long term, and there are all these shadow fulfillments of something, maybe a short term fulfillment of a long term prophecy. <clears throat> David is a, um, a shadow, a preview of Messiah. Moses is a preview of Messiah. Joshua is a preview. They're all, they're all these previews of, of the eventual coming of Christ, pointing the way. Um, David was anointed as a teenager. Why did God have uh, Samuel anoint David so far ahead of when he would take the throne? So David was announced by God as, you're, you're the king, right? He, he was anointed as a king, and yet he didn't get the throne for a long time. Jesus was anointed as a king, but it was a long time before he'll get the throne. David became a king in waiting. Jesus is a king in waiting. It is announced. He is anointed. He is the chosen one. He's a king in waiting. There's all these preview pictures. Um, David became king at the age of 30. Jesus was baptized and received the Holy Spirit of God at the age of 30. Um, David reigned for 40 years, uh, but it was 30, he was 30 when he got anointed. Now, let me go through a few of them. David was a shepherd before being announced as a king. Jesus refers to himself as a good shepherd. David was a king of Israel. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. 
both men, David and Jesus, had God with them through the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that? When Samuel anoints the oil over David's head, what does it say? And the Holy Spirit came upon David in power. Jesus, when he comes up out of the water and by John the Baptist, and the skies open and the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus in power. Both men had many enemies. David and Jesus. Both men were beloved by God. David's name in Hebrew means what? Beloved. God proclaimed his love to Jesus at the baptism. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. <clears throat> they were both being pursued by leaders. Saul pursued David in order to kill him. The Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus. The ruling authority in both men's lives was always, were always trying to destroy him. This one's really interesting. David ate consecrated bread. Remember when he's, when he's running from Saul, him and his men are starving, and they eat the consecrated bread out of the, the, out of the, uh, the priest's bread that they had. And, and they weren't supposed to do that. And Jesus eats consecrated bread. We call it the Last Supper. It, there's, there's all these parallels. Before being the king of Israel, David was anointed as king of the house of Judah. Jesus Christ is revealed as the lion from the tribe of Judah. This one blows me away. In fact, I had to go look this one up. Uh, Ahithophel. I probably got that wrong. Ahithropel was David's counsel and close friend. However, Ahithropel betrayed King David and gave advice to King David's enemy. After finding out that the advice was not followed, you know what Ahithropel did? He went out and hung himself. So a close counselor, commandant of David, betrayed David and went and hung himself. Judas was one of the 12, betrayed Jesus and went out and hung himself. God has promised David's offspring will establish a throne in the kingdom that will last forever. Jesus is the offspring of David. David cast out a demon. Remember when King Saul was tormented, what did they call David to do? He's tormented, tormented by an evil spirit. And here would come David into the presence, and he's got the Holy Spirit, right? And he comes in and he plays his musical harp, and the spirit leaves King Saul. Jesus Christ cast out demons by his simple command. He didn't need to have a harp. Both men are from Bethlehem. Can you see it? Now, I did all of that so that we can now... Do this. I want to walk through Psalms 22. So I want to show you the first. I think it's dark on your page. Uh, I want to show you the, the King David shadow, and then I want to show you Jesus' fulfillment to show you, to illustrate the power of the Bible in the Messianic prophecy. First off, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? This is David talking a thousand years before the cross. So how does that connect? 
It would be hard for you to not see how that connects. At noon, in Matthew 27, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. At about 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Literally the same words. Why have you abandoned me? Do you see it? Let's go to the next one. Psalms 22, verse 6. David says, but I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Now, this is the anointed king. Do you get it? He's the anointed king. Why does the anointed king call himself a worm and he's despised by everyone? He is the shadow of Messiah. I'm despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. So let's add another one. I want to jump over to Psalm 69, another messianic prophecy, and add them together. It even makes this seem more powerful. Verse 20, their insults have broken my heart. I want you to picture Jesus on the cross when I read that one. Their insults have broken my heart. He's dying for those ones. He's dying for their insults have broken my heart and I am in despair. If only one person would show me some pity. If only one would turn and comfort me. But instead they give me poison for food. They offer me sour wine for my thirst. What happened on the cross? Well, let's go. Luke 23. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers mocked him too, and they offered him a drink of sour wine. You can't make this up. There's too many, too many connections. Go to Luke 23. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. You, so, you're the Messiah, are you? Prove to it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Go to Psalms 22, the David shadow. Yet you brought me safely home from my mother's womb and led me to trust you at my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth you have been my God from the moment I was born. Now, that's David. David talks, what's he saying here? David said that you were involved in my life from birth, from my mother's womb. You were directing me. Do you, do you think that connects to messianic prophecy? Um, so let's go to John 5, 19. Jesus explained, explain, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He does only what He sees the Father doing, and whatever the Father does, the Son also does. I tell you what's interesting when I read that, is that Jesus, we have no record of His um, earthly ministry having any influence anywhere until the baptism in the Jordan River. Do you know that? Now, there's no record. There's an event when he's 12 years old, but we don't know anything. He's 30 years old and he's baptized. And what happens? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. 
and, and the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Father comes upon him. But did it begin there? No, the ministry began there. But where did it begin? Well, at the conception. At the conception. And David is announcing the exact same thing in his own life. That uh, you led me to trust at my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth. Surely you've been with me since I was born. So let's go to the next one. Psalms 22, 14. My life is poured out like water. This is the king of Israel. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. Do you see the suffering of David? And then in John 19, one of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear. And immediately blood and water flowed out. The separation of blood and water is a sign of a ruptured heart. Blood and water flowed out. Do you see the connection? Psalms 22, 15. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. What, 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 when does the, your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth? What, what's happened? You thirst, right? When you're so thirsty. He's describing incredible thirst. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. I'm dying of thirst. Psalms 69, 21. I'm going to jump over to 69. But instead they gave me poison for food. They offered me sour wine to satisfy my thirst. Now go to the, to the gospels. Luke 23, as they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Serene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him, put him on the cross, and made him carry the cross. So in this scene, Jesus knew, John 19, 28, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill the scripture, Jesus says, I am thirsty. My strength is gone like sun-baked clay. Somebody helped, had to help him carry that cross. His strength is gone. David announces, my strength is gone. Simon um, had to help him carry the cross. I thirst. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. 16. And, and let me say, 16 is the verse um, that we're really focusing on tonight. Verse 16. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I want you to focus on pierced. My hands and feet, specifically. What in David's life, you have to wonder, what in David's life a thousand years before Christ, he wasn't being crucified. So what in David's life, is representing the piercing of his hands and his feet. I, I don't know. But that's what he writes in Psalms 22. They have pierced my hands and feet. Unless it is just a prophetic announcement of the future. Of just, uh, just an announcement of something that's going to happen. So, let's fast forward from David. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples in his resurrected body. And he shows them specifically. It's recorded specifically. He shows them the two things that David brings up in Psalm twenty-two sixteen, Luke twenty-two forty, And as he, Jesus spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Why does Luke record that specifically? 
because it is a direct fulfillment of David's messianic prophecy. This messianic prophecy of David was a thousand years before Jesus and 700 years before the Romans established crucifixion as the method of execution. 700 years in advance of the Romans having power and starting crucifying people. Pierced hands and pierced feet are recorded about the future. Luke 23, 33, when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him. Where's the piercing come from? They nailed him to the cross. And again, he's pierced in his side. We're going to deal with that in a future Messianic prophecy. <clears throat> this verse 17, specifically his hands and feet. When they came to the place in skull, they nailed him. They didn't nail him through the side. They put a spear through his side. They nailed him to the cross and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. So, let's do this. I've done all this shadow and fulfillment, shadow and fulfillment, shadow and fulfillment. A thousand years gap between the shadow and the fulfillment. So Jesus came, he's death, burial, resurrection. He goes to the right hand of the Father. And the Apostle Peter, listen up. The Apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, what, 50 days after the crucifixion, 50 days after, all of it's going to be put together. In this scripture, I'm going to read all of this whole thing's going to be put together, or should I say the Holy Spirit's going to put it all together, when Peter preaches his first Holy Spirit-filled sermon to the Jews in Jerusalem. It's the day of Pentecost. It's the Jewish feast, and they're all coming in from all over the country to celebrate the Jewish festival of Pentecost, like they're supposed to. And Peter um, has been told by Jesus before the ascension, don't leave Jerusalem until the power comes. Something's going to happen. So you just stay here until the power comes, until the Spirit comes. Here we go. This is what happens. I want you to notice how everything is going to do this. I've shown you the shadow. I showed you the fulfillment. And the church is about to begin. The church age is about to start. People of Israel, Peter said, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. Now, now stop for a moment. God knew what was going to happen in advance. It's a prearranged plan. If it's a prearranged plan, then now you know why David wrote Psalms 22. It's a prearranged plan. The Jews taking Jesus to Pilate is a prearranged plan. It's prearranged. Understand that. And here's Peter. It's all happened. Jesus has gone to the right hand of the Father. But God knew what was going to happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. And with the help of lawless Gentiles, that's Pilate. <clears throat> all right, that's the, the Romans. And with the help of lawless Gentiles, you, Jews, nailed him to the cross and you killed him. You nailed him. Okay? 
That's, that's, verse, that's Psalms 22, 17. You nailed him. Peter's bringing it up. You nailed him to the cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. And now, guess who he's going to bring up on the day of Pentecost? King David. King David's a thousand years ago. A thousand years. King David said this about him. You think Peter gets it? Do you get it? Because the Holy Spirit's telling Peter. The Holy Spirit is doing this. It all fits. Every bit of it. King David said this about him, Jesus. I see that the Lord is always with me. Whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus didn't come for a thousand years after King David. David is having a messianic prophecy moment. I see the Lord is always with me. I'll not be shaken, for he is right beside me. What was it that came upon David at the anointing of Samuel? And the Spirit came upon David in power. And what's David say? I see that the Lord is always with me. Did you think the Holy Spirit was God Jr.? Huh? Did you? What did you think the Holy Spirit was? I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken. He's right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead. Okay, that's two parts. You will not leave my soul. So what's David saying? I got a soul. One day I'm going to go in the ground and die. But you will not leave my soul. We're not talking about David's body. You will not leave my soul among the dead. Okay? And here it comes, the big one. And you will not allow your holy one to rot in the grave. David's soul, Messiah's body. You with me? David's soul. You will not leave my soul or the, the, the body of Messiah, your holy one, to rot in the grave. That's why it was only three days. You have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. This is Peter preaching this on Pentecost a thousand years after David. Why is he quoting David? You have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Now, here's Peter. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself. For he died, David, and he was buried, David, and his tomb is here among us. His body's in there. Okay? His body's in there. So when it says, you're not going to leave my body to the rot, he's not talking about him because his body went in there to rot. Right? What's, that? What's Peter preaching? He's not talking about himself. Then who's he talking about? But he, David, was a prophet. And he knew, David knew, God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. And we're not talking about Solomon. Okay? David was looking into the future. This is the day of Pentecost. This is the beginning of the church age. 
This matters. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. Why? You'll not let your Holy One experience decay. He's not going to rot in the grave. It'll only be three days and he's out of here. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God will not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now, he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand, and the Father, as, and the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. Now, it's important that you understand that when Peter starts this preaching, the Holy Spirit has come. Just as you see, just as you hear, what happened to David and the Holy Spirit came upon him in power is happening right now. Except in the time of David, the Holy Spirit came upon a single individual. On the day of Pentecost, it came upon a bunch of individuals. Big difference. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to pour out upon us, his disciples, just as you see and hear today. Here we go. Here's David again. For David himself never ascended into heaven. And yet David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words did something. And I think the, this translation is particularly interesting. It pierced them. It pierced their hearts. And they said to him, to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And you know what Peter answered him? It's not in the text. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and all from a great future whom the Lord himself will call. That's what he said. What should we do? Do that. Do that. And when you finish doing that, I'll tell you what else to do. The word of the one who was pierced pierced their own hearts, and 3,000 people were baptized that day. 3,000. You think that's a pretty good service? Now, here's something interesting. I didn't realize this until a few years ago. Do you know there wasn't a single Gentile in the crowd that day? None. It's a Jewish festival. Gentiles are unclean. You can't be in there. There's no Gentiles there. And you know what? We, the Gentile arrogant church, and I'll say we, the Gentile arrogant church, we, we look at the day of Pentecost as our birthday. But the reality is we weren't there that day. We weren't there. It's a Jewish festival. They're celebrating the, the harvest. And they're assembling in Jerusalem to celebrate the harvest. Only Jews or those who had converted to Judaism would have been allowed in that scene. It would be much later when Cornelius would become the first Gentile convert after the preaching of Peter. 
And then, yes, by God's grace and mercy, the door swung open wide to the Gentiles. He calls the apostle Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, and the door swings open wide. But on the day of Pentecost, there weren't any of us there. It's the Jewish people. Interesting, isn't it? On Pentecost, here's the big teaching moment tonight. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. And you tell me what Peter used to convince them to cry out to God. This. This. What did Peter do? He recounted the Old Testament prophecy of David. Isn't it interesting? He didn't have any, I mean, he, he talked about Messiah, but he put Messiah in context of messianic prophecy of David. That's what he did. Go back and read it. He used the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, to explain and reveal Jesus as Lord and Messiah. And, and the reason I say that's our teaching point for tonight is this. The same thing happens today when the Word of God is preached under the power of the Holy Spirit. Same thing. Because what happened there? What shall we do to be saved? And, and what should be our answer? Same answer as Peter. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, future generations. It's a promise. You can get the Holy Spirit. You can get Jesus inside of you. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. So let's go back. 22.17. I'll read it again. I count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. Can you imagine what the context of that one was for David? Luke 23. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others. They said, let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Well, what is, what's consistent in both of those texts? The enemy stare and they gloat at me. The leaders scoff at me. They mock me. They belittle me. Go to verse 18. The shadow. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. David said that? King David said that? Yeah. How clear is this one? John 19, 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Wow. Psalm 22, 19. The shadow. Oh, Lord. Do not stay far away from me. This is David. Lord, don't stay far away from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, I need, I need to stop and make something clear. I believe 21 is a direct reference to the grave. They're going to kill me. They're not going to maim me. They're not going to wound me. They're, this scene is snatch me from death. They're, I'm going to die. If you don't show up, I'm going to die. Let me read it again. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaw 
and from the horn of the wild oxen. And then, and then after you snatch me from death, after you snatch David's, after you snatch me from the grave, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. Can you see it? Anybody see it? I will praise you among the assembled people. After you snatch me from the grave, after you save me from these wild oxen, these dogs, Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. Verse 21 and 22 declare the death and resurrection of Messiah a thousand years in advance. Was Jesus snatched from lion's jaw of death from the horns of the wild oxen? Yes. Did he go to the grave? Yes. But did he remain in the grave? No. So they lost. They lost. Their, their plan was to destroy him, but they could not destroy him. But why? Because God snatched him from the, the uh, what do you say, the lion's jaw and the horns of the wild oxen. Did God save Jesus from these dogs or did he abandon him to the grave? David's not talking about himself. David is in the grave. David's talking about the Messiah. In Mark 16, verse 5, when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting at the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead into Galilee. You'll see him there just as he told you before he died. He told you this was going to happen. Go back up to verse 21 and 22. This is one of my favorites for this particular section. A thousand years in advance, David says, snatch me from the lion's jaw from the horns of these wild oxen. David died and they buried him. He's not talking about himself. And if you, and when you snatch me from the lion's jaws, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters, and I will praise you among the assembled people. That's Jesus after the resurrection. Just as he told you, just as he told David. But what about after that? And what about after, what about now? The rest of Psalm 22 deals with the future millennial reign of King Jesus on this present earth. Now, it's interesting to me that um, I wrote that a long time before I figured I was going to do the sermon I did this past Sunday, which deals almost entirely with the millennial reign of Christ that comes in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 11. So I want to say this. The rest of, I've read to you Psalms 22 up to a point, up to verse 24. The rest of this talks about the 1,000 year reign of Christ on this earth. It's going to synchronize itself to Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 11. So when, I'm, when I start reading here, I want you to take your mind and comprehend that um, Jesus was snatched from the lion's jaw, verse 21. 
And he says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. Jesus is proclaiming the name of the Father. He's revealing the Father's glory to his brothers and sisters. Who's his brothers and sisters? Us. And he's revealing the Father to us. Why? Because there's a next thing that's coming. There's a next thing that's coming. There's a rapture of the church. There's a tribulation. And there's a kingdom coming to the earth. Here we go. I will praise you in the great assembly. Hmm. I will fulfill my vows. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I, this is all messianic. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Can you see the millennial kingdom, Isaiah 65? The poor will eat and be satisfied, and all who seek the Lord will praise Him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth, listen, I'm not talking about regional revival. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to Him. And all the families of the nations will bow down before Him. When do you think that's going to happen? All the families of the nations will bow down before him. Do you remember in that, I think it's in Isaiah 65, uh, maybe in 11, not 65. It says, as the waters cover the earth, so shall the knowledge of the Lord fill the earth. Which means everybody will know who he is. Everybody. When? When do you think that'll be? It's not now. As the water, it's a prophecy, Isaiah's prophecy. As the waters cover the earth... So shall the earth be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. He's talking about a future time. Verse 27, the whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. This is David writing this a thousand years before he gets here. Referring to the millennial reign of Christ. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him all who are mortal. All whose lives will end as dust. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. Can you see it, this future kingdom? When you pray the Lord's Prayer, can you see this, the outcome? And Lord, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. This is it right here. When all the nations of the earth bow down and turn to him. And may your will be done on earth. That's here. As it is in heaven. Do these prophecies tonight pierce your own heart? Stoning and then crucifixion. There was a lot of death in this kingdom scene. But it all ended up with a king and feasting on the earth. Everything tonight, I started with the fact that they stoned people and then they moved to crucifying people. There's a lot of death and judgment and capital crimes in these scenes. But you know, this story tonight ends with what? A king and feasting. Psalms 22 ends with a king and feasting and celebration. That's where the story ends. God established a form of execution and judgment for the Jewish people. God did it. I want to make sure everybody understands that. You know who did it? Who established a form of capital punishment? God did. God established a method to execute people. 
to kill them. Anybody struggling with this? He did it. Not the Romans. He established it. It was stoning in the beginning. God established the death penalty. Do you know that? A lot of controversy about the death penalty. I can tell you who was the first one to establish the death penalty. God was. God has also announced his future death penalty. It's an eternal prison called hell. Do you believe in God's death penalty called hell? Because this whole story means nothing unless you apply it to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What, and God loved the world so much that you wouldn't have to perish, and perish is the death penalty. You're going to get the death penalty. He's going to execute you. Execution from God's perspective is not that your soul stops existing. It means that your soul stops existing in the presence of God, which means you still exist. You just don't exist around him. You lost that opportunity. So I want to do something. And it's an answer of a question because ultimately it all has to come back to the same place. Do you believe in God's death penalty called hell? Because he describes it pretty plainly in Revelation 20. And then I saw an angel coming from heaven. And this angel has a key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in the angel's hand. And he, this angel, seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and he bound him in chain for, chains for a thousand years. If you were here this last Sunday, we covered that in great detail. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and he locked. And somebody say hallelujah. <laughs> which he shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were over. What does that tell you about right now? Right now, he is deceiving the nations. Right now, today. He's not locked away. And afterward, after the thousand years, he must be released for a little while. And then, I saw thrones. People sitting on them and had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted the mark on their forehead or on their hands. And they all came to life again. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead, I talked about that. Um, the, the, the rest of the dead, they're in Sheol, Hades. They're in the place of the dead during the thousand years. They're, they're, they're waiting the final judgment which won't be good. They're going to miss all the glory that we just talked about tonight. We talked about Sunday. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death has, holds no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So let's jump down to verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it, and the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but there was no place to hide. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done and as recorded in the books. 
and the sea gave up its dead and death and the grave gave up their dead. Everybody that's dead is going to be given up. Everything. Well, I mean dead bodies. You ever think, let me, let me say something. There's a point coming where the earth will be purified from all death. All the death will be raised up. It's all going to be, dis it's going to disappear. You see the seas, everybody died on the in the ocean, you're coming out. Anybody buried in the ground, you're coming out. Anybody in the house, fire turned to dust, coming out. They're all coming out. You see what's happening? And the sea gave up its dead, and death in the grave gave up their dead. Everybody's given up their dead, and they're all judged according to their deeds. And then death and the grave, that's it. That's the, that's the last enemy. We're thrown into the lake of fire, and this lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name is not found written, recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. <clears throat> so here's my conclusion from Psalms 22. God still has the death penalty. Still does. For those who refuse to place their faith in his son, our king, the root and the offspring of David, Jesus Messiah. If you've ever questioned that, there's the last recorded story of Jesus, the last recorded speaking of Jesus before Palm Sunday, he enters Jerusalem from the Gospel of Luke. The last thing recorded before he goes into Jerusalem to lay down his life as the Lamb of God. The last thing recorded before Palm Sunday entry is what I'm going to close with. Jesus said, yes, the king replied, and to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, and these enemies in the world, the nations that don't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. You know, my frustration is there's an entire generation of church people that cannot comprehend those words ever coming out of Jesus' mouth. Because they've never been taught the fear of the Lord. For those people who don't want me to, don't want me to be their king, who don't want to yield to my authority, sovereign authority and power, bring them in here and I will execute them in front of me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy, your grace. For you have made a way for us to make peace with you by submitting to the royal son. Lord, your, your psalm number two says, kiss the son lest he becomes angry with you. Kiss him. So tonight we kiss you. We love you. We worship you. We bow to you. We, won't, we don't want to be... Um, under the authority of anyone except you, including our own authority. So, Father, we bow to this King, Messiah. We accept this Messianic prophecy as truth. We understand that there is a death penalty, and it's not crucifixion. It's not stoning. It's eternal separation from you in hell. And I pray, Father, that no one who hears my voice tonight would ever experience that horror, but we would all Instead, acknowledge you and you alone as our King. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.